All right. How's everybody doing? Um, anybody want to tell us something that's been good happening in your world, in your life? Amy? Is it about a house? Nice. That's it's what we like. <laughs> right. Yeah. God's like, no, no, you can't. <laughs> Anybody else? Something happening with you? Anna? Good, good for you and him both, Anna. That's awesome. That pumps me up. That pumps me up. Um, while I'm thinking about it, we are um, planning, I don't remember the date right off the top of my head right now, but we're planning a uh, Seder dinner coming up. Uh, Michael, do you remember the date? Seventh sounds right. Um, it's a Tuesday night, and uh, do you, who does not know what a Seder dinner is? No. Well, we, we may, we, I don't know if we, I don't, don't rush me. We're just now talking about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Um, so a Seder dinner is a, um, it's a Passover dinner. And it's, uh, we, we, what we will do is we will have a, um, a Messianic Passover, which, which in my opinion, all Passovers are Messianic. But, uh, but, but it seems like, and you'll see, if you, if you come to this and you go through it with us, uh, the, you, one of the things that you will process as you leave is how can, how can the Jewish people not see this? How do they miss it? Um, every element of the Passover has, um, has significance. It all points to God and forgiveness and the, and the Messiah. Everything points to Jesus, the Messiah. And, uh, and so we're going to do that in April. Um, I think the 7th is the, it's the week before Easter. That's why we're doing it that week, yeah. And, uh, and so Michael has some experience with this, and we're going to do it. Instead of bringing a group in like we've done before, uh, we're, Michael and I are going to do this together, mostly Michael, some me. He doesn't know how much that's a true statement right there. So, uh, so be looking forward to that. Yep. That's, that's also the, the reason that we did it that week, uh, is because of the Passover thing. So, the Passover thing, uh, which is also what we call Easter. Um, so, uh, let me, let me ask some questions, and we're going to look at a video. We, so we've been talking about relationships. We've been talking about how we, get to, uh, how we interact with each other, how we connect with the peop- each other, different types of relationships, depths of relationships, all kinds of stuff. Um, 
the uh, why why does why does God forgive us? Why is that such a big deal to God? Okay, yes. So he's holy, we're not, so he has to do something about it. But why? Why would he care? He wants relationship with us. The only way he can have relationship with us, being a holy God and a just God, both of those together, is he has to do something to bring us back in relationship with him. We push God away. We, we always think about when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, you know, God, God kicks them out and does it. But, but we don't realize that, that we, sometimes, I mean, I, I think maybe we know cognitively, but we don't put it together. God didn't want to kick us out of the garden. He wouldn't have made the garden just to kick us out. That wasn't the point. The point was for us to be in the garden, to have relationship with us, to talk to us, to hang out with us, all these other things. The, the reason that we get kicked out of the garden is because we, we pushed him away. We pushed his plan, his will, his holiness. Uh, we pushed all that away, and we said, we'll do this ourselves. And it was, it was obviously a deception that Satan had convinced uh, Eve. But, but this, is, um, this is not, how we are right now is not God's plan. It's not the way God designed this. It's not what he wants. He wants closeness with us. But because he's holy, he can't have closeness with us because we've chosen sin. So we, he has to do something to, to fix that problem, that conundrum. And so that's why he sends Jesus to forgive us. It's because of relationship. That's the, that's the bottom line is relationship. Even if it was just eternity or something like that. See, see there's more to this. If, if it was just about us getting to heaven, which, which that's the way, when I was growing up, that's the only way I thought about Jesus died on the cross so I can get to heaven. It was my ticket. And, uh, but, it, but if that was the only reason that he wanted to do this is just so that I could get to heaven, wouldn't he kill me as soon as I got saved? Wouldn't that make more sense? Just, just okay, now you're saying, boom, we're not going to take a chance. If, if the only thing is getting to heaven, then, then he, he would probably desire to take us out. So, so why doesn't he do that? He wants relationship, Okay. But that's only part of it. He wants relationship. He wants relationship with us, but there's more to it. What else does he desire? Why does he save us, then leave us alive? He wants, he wants this relationship to build, not just, hello, God, there you are, thank you, and now I'm going to go to heaven. He wants this to build. Now, what would be some possible reasons that he wants this relationship between he, uh, us and, and him to grow? Okay. Okay. So there is a there is an expectation from God that there's going to be more from us. Wouldn't you agree with that? When God saves us slash leaves us alive, when God saves us, there there is an expectation. There is a written in expectation that He's going to that that I mean a written um, an, an expectation that He wants something from us, that He needs something from us. Okay. Um. Now, in the big sense, yes, he wants us to have a relationship with him, wants us to have a relationship with each other, and he wants the world that doesn't know him to have a relationship with him. That demands we have a relationship with them and him. We have to have both. We have to have a relationship with the world, and, the, and we have to have a relationship with God. Now, this is one of those interesting things. Growing up in the church, I've seen this um, 
ministry, I've seen this over and over, it is so common, it is so easy, natural for us as Christians to isolate ourselves among other Christians. It's normal human nature because there's a safety zone there. There's a safety net. There's a, um, we, we kind of all are thinking the same thing. I mean, the big picture stuff, not individually, but Jesus is God. We're going to do the best we can to serve him. There's that kind of thing. And so there's certain things that we can do and we can act like and we can say uh, that, that, that are all part of the same culture, same subculture, right? And so then we gravitate toward each other, but what that does is that it pushes others away, ostracizes others in the process. The, the problem with that is it's the exact opposite of what God wants to do with us. Um, the, the scripture that says that we're supposed to be in the world but not of the world, I, don't, I think we forget the first part of it. We're still supposed to be in the world. We're still supposed to be interacting with people. I ask this question to our, our, um, our staff around here every now and then. Who are your unsaved friends? That's, that sounds like a strange thing to ask, but who are your unsaved friends? And, and I would say it's specifically, because Colorado Springs is a unique thing that I haven't seen in any other setting anywhere else. There's a lot of ministry organizations you can work for if you live in Colorado Springs. And what happens is, is we can isolate ourselves in our Christian bubble, and we never actually interact with unsaved people, although I would say that there's a good percentage of unsaved people in your workplaces of Christian ministry organizations. But that's a different subject. But we're, we isolate ourselves, we, we um, insulate ourselves between the, the, the stuff of the world, and then we do the same with the people of the world. Who are your unsafe friends would be the first question. And then the second question would be, what are you doing about them? What, what about your unsafe friends? Is, is anything happening? Is anything different? Are you saying something? Are you thinking something? Are you praying something? Or do you just have unsaved friends? Um, most of us have unsaved friends, or at least acquaintances, or neighbors that we talk to, or every now and then, or something. But what are we doing about it? Because God expects us to have a relationship with him, relationship with the world, so that we can bring the world to him. And then also, in the midst of that, we're supposed to be having a relationship with each other, <clears throat> okay? Um, I do think there's a little bit different context for our relationship with each other than there would be with the relationship with the world, okay? We're supposed to be um, uh, praying together, worshiping together, those kind of things. But I really think that we're not supposed to be that much different with our Christian friends as we are with our non-Christian friends. But if we if we push ourselves way over into a Christian culture, then, then it's difficult to duplicate that Christian culture with our unsafe friends. Okay, let, me, let me give you one small example. It's not that big of a deal. It's just, a, it's just an example that I grew up with that, that we don't see that in too much. Well, I was about to say anymore, but we do see it sometimes. But, um, but we don't see it usually in contexts that I'm involved in ministry with for obvious reasons. Um, when I was growing up, you had to call everybody brother and sister, right? Because we're Christians, we call each other brother and sister. I'm not picking on that totally, except for one thing. What happens when we're in the grocery store and we're talking to somebody else? Do we call them brother or sister? Well, they're not Christians, so we don't call them brother and sister. But don't you think to non-Christians, brother and sister sounds weird? Doesn't it sound like a cult or something like that? So I stopped doing that years ago. Years ago. By the way, I got in trouble for it. I got, I got uh, great in trouble for it from people in the church. 
well, shouldn't you call him brother or so-and-so? Or so-and-so? No. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Call anybody, whatever you want to call him. But there are certain things that I do that are very intentional that I'm trying to say we're all in this together. We're, we're a family together. We're a group together. And if we're really living as Christians, whatever that culture is, we're not going to be that much different out in the world. If you change so dramatically when you go to church than you are when you're at work, there's something wrong with one or the other. In one of those two, you're a hypocrite. In one of those two, you're fake, or maybe both, I don't know, but in one of those, you're fake. If, you're, if, you're the, if you can be the same wherever you go, then that shows uh, people who you really are, and there's some consistency there. If you're standing talking to your neighbor, and they're a Christian, and they say something about, well, uh, you know, I'm having trouble with the uh, spouse, how you answer them should be the same as how you answer your non-Christian friend that's having trouble with their spouse, right? What are you going to tell your Christian friend? I'm going to pray for you. Can I, can I help in any way? I'll be praying for you. What can I do? What are you going to tell your non-Christian friend? Should be the same thing. Sometimes we train ourselves to say something totally different. Yeah, I know, men. What are you going to do? You know. So one of those two people is not really you. Which one is really you? It should be, our Christianity should be consistent in our whole life. Consistent wherever we go, whatever, whoever we're talking to, those kind of things. Now, with that, um, I, I really, I really I, well, I know that, that the, one of the biggest things that we miss in, in Christian culture, this is a cultural thing, it's not scriptural, it's not truly spiritual, it's not really what our heart is saying when the Holy Spirit is working on us, but culturally in Christianity, we, we've bought into a mentality that, that uh, we, can, we can get saved, um, do Christian stuff, not be used by the Lord really in ministering, but then everything's good. Again, remember this is the, um, the, uh, the two, greatest com- to, two greatest commandments. Love God with everything about you. Love your neighbors yourself. And in American Christianity, we've convinced ourselves we can love God with everything about us, not love our neighbor to the point of salvation and truly caring about their soul and stuff like that. Not love our neighbor, but we've convinced ourselves that that's a legitimate Christian context. I can love God not ever tell anybody about Jesus, not care about their soul, not care about what's going on, and somehow we're fulfilling the obedience to those two commandments. Now, if, if I say it like that, obviously we go, well, yeah, that makes... But, but guys, how long can you be a Christian and not witness to somebody still thinking you're growing closer to the Lord, still thinking you're getting in, in deeper in what God wants you to do because you've convinced yourself in your head, you convinced yourself that there are three or four other things you can do but not truly love your neighbor. And how does he say love your neighbor? As you love yourself, right? So unless you have a deep desire to go to hell, you should be loving your neighbor to heaven, right? Now we've convinced ourselves, I can love God, read his word, go to church, worship, do all that stuff, and just leave out the whole second half of this thing. And, and actually Jesus says the second is at like the first, or the same as the first. And somehow we've convinced ourselves that's a good, healthy, scriptural uh, paradigm. And it's not. But we've been doing it so long in America that we've convinced ourselves that's legitimate. And we can come to church, do our church things, go home. Come to church, do our church things, go home. And never interact for Jesus with the lost, and somehow we're good. Because that's a very dangerous place to be. Well, here's another layer of that that I've, I've seen over the years also. 
is that we can do the, all the exact same stuff and never really minister to even Christians, never really go there in relationship and ministering to other Christians. See them at church, hey, how you doing, that kind of thing. We'll go to a Bible study and we'll say stuff, like on a Wednesday night here, we'll say stuff you know, about the Word and we'll put stuff on Facebook. And, but we're not really ministering, we're not really connecting and ministering. And this comes back to, to the, the thing I just... I, beat the death around here is like accountability partners, deeper relationships, those kind of things, really ministering to people, truly ministering. How's the Holy Spirit doing something in you? How are you doing something? How's the Holy Spirit doing something through you to them? Really ministering. And we still convince ourselves we're doing one whole half, the best we could ever do. If we're, if we're living our Christian life perfect, everything's perfect, we could only be matching up to 50%. On any estimation except baseball, that's failing right? That's if we're perfect. And we're leaving out all the rest, ministering to others, witnessing to the lost, ministering, making disciples of the lost, all this other stuff. Now, what, what we've been looking at over these last few weeks is relationship with each other, relationship with God, relationship with each other. How does that work? Okay, let's go to, um, let's go to the video, seven. Roll that beautiful bean footage. Well, sometimes we, we kind of get a funny thing about balancing things, like balance forgiveness and grace with challenge and push. Think about it. <clears throat> if you got an airplane, you know, and you have two engines and they're out of balance, one's at, you know, 100% and the other's at 80, you're going to kind of fly in a, in a circle. Well, you don't balance that by cutting back on the 100 and go 80-80, because then you're not becoming all you can be. What you want to do is up what's missing, okay? So when you think about, you know, forgiveness and grace and challenge and push, in one sense, those are not even talking about the same construct, because forgiveness has to do with something that's gone wrong in the past, and we want to have grace and acceptance and washing that away and forgiving it when it's confessed and repented of. And so the past is gone. Forgiveness covers the past. Push is talking about where we're going from here. And so we don't need to balance the past and the future. We need to resolve the past, forgive the past, heal the past. But let's ask, okay, so how can we get better today? The fact that I'm asking you to get better doesn't mean that I don't forgive you. I've already forgiven you. I just love you. And see, the push to get better, that's has nothing to do with forgiveness. Forgiveness has been done. Actually, the push to get better is grace because grace is not forgiveness. Grace is unmerited favor. It means I'm for you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I want you to succeed. And if I want you to succeed, certainly I'm going to push you to to grow out of this pattern or to change in this way or build this strength. And grace means unmerited favor that we give things that they can't provide or they can't merit or they can't earn. I'm also going to resource you. See, grace is not just license. Grace is I'm for you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you the groups you need. I'm going to give you the support you need. I'm going to give you the information you need. And I'm going to nudge you, okay? What does that have to do with forgiveness? Forgiveness is, is, has to do with it. You're already forgiven. Now let's get better. Let's go for it. I love it. You know, one of the greatest kind of pulling all this together 
is is when when Peter denied Christ, or actually before that, when when Jesus predicted it. Watch this. He said, he said, you're going to fail me three times, and then he says this. But after you have returned, you will become the source of strength for many. Forgiveness is always there, even before he did it. The forgiveness was was secure. But he looked past that to the, you're going to grow past what you go through, and you're even going to become somebody that can help others when they fail. <clears throat> so let's, let's, um, let's look at the story of Peter, because that's what he was talking about. So Peter, Jesus tells Peter, and we're going to get into a little bit of um, uh tricky theological process of thinking, okay? But, but it's not as tricky if, you'll, if, you'll, if you really process it. It's not as tricky as it can sound at first. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, right? So why did Jesus say that to Peter? Okay? That's, that's one of the biggest things. Peter... Peter always walked around with, I'm better than everybody kind of mentality. I, you know, I'll be quicker, I'll be smarter, I'll be whatever. Um, uh, quick to, first to say, first to jump, last to think kind of thing. That was Peter, right? So one of the reasons Jesus says is because um, Peter is already assuming that he's going to be, no matter what happens in the future, he's going to do it the best as everybody else. Okay? What's another reason Jesus says this to Peter? Okay, let me ask, these are both right. Okay, so that's our foundation. Now let me ask a question that's pretty important. Was it God's will for Peter to do that? No? No? What would have been God's will? This is where it gets a little tricky for us. No matter how much... Okay, I, I strongly don't believe, and I think most of you in here would not believe in predestination. But we struggle with it no matter what. No matter what, we're going to struggle with a predestination mentality. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. So does that mean Peter was going to do that no matter what? Very valid. I think, is this me doing this? I'm not doing anything. So, there's, so does Jesus know Peter is going to do this? Yes. Okay? Does that mean Peter is going to do it? Okay, let's, let's, uh, these are the two examples that I always use because they're the easiest to get to. Why did jo- what did God tell Jonah about Nineveh? 
Nineveh is evil, and what's God going to do? Destroy it. Did God say, if you tell them, Jonah, I will not destroy it? No. He said, Jonah, go tell them I'm going to destroy them. That's all he said. Jonah fights all this kind of Jonah finally shows up in Nineveh, and he says, okay, uh, Nineveh, God says he's going to destroy you. Now, what was part of uh, Jonah's argument as to why he didn't want to go to Nineveh? They were, they were evil. He didn't want to have any part of it. And he was scared that they were going to repent. And if they repented, then he looked like a liar. He looked like he made the whole thing up. Isn't that what he says? He, that's what he says to God. Then he, then he goes to Nineveh, preaches to Nineveh. They all repent. And now Jonah gets mad afterwards. What is Jonah mad about afterwards? Now he's mad at God because... You gave them grace, they repented, now I look like a fool and you didn't destroy them. Nowhere in there does Jonah actually care about one person in Nineveh. He doesn't care about one soul, one individual. He's like, God, you, I knew you weren't going to destroy them. I knew you weren't. You said you were. You always do this. You say you're going to destroy them, and then you give them a break. Isn't that, isn't that, wasn't that his argument? That's when he's sitting under the plant, and then God just starts messing with him. You know God's irritated with him. He grows a plant, cuts it down, does all this stuff. He's like, Jonah, shut up. Right. Okay, now, here's the big one. Why is the book of Revelation written? I believe strongly it's so that we will repent. I don't think God wants the book of Revelation to happen any more than he wanted to destroy Nineveh. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, because, but God's already prophesied about it. All right, but didn't God prophesy to Jonah that he was going to destroy Nineveh? What is the point of prophecy? All prophecy, what's the basic point? To reveal God, to, to bring people to God. So, so when we're prophesying about God... If we're saying God is going to do this and they repent, then God doesn't have to do it. It wasn't set in stone that he had to do it no matter what. That's the reason he sent them. If he was going to destroy Nineveh, no matter what, why send Jonah? If, he's going to, if everything in the book of Revelation is going to happen no matter what, why write the book? Now, I've had this people, people argue and say, well, so that we'll know it's happening. That's, all, that's the best God can come up with is, I'm going to do a bunch of bad stuff, so I'm going to tell you about it. Thanks, God. That's nice. God does it to get us to repent. I strongly believe the reason that he tells Peter this. And here's another thing. I, I believe the reason when he looks at Judas and he says, Judas, go, go, go do what you're going to do. I believe he wanted Judas to repent. I don't, I don't think he wanted Judas to do that. Guys, I, I've argued this out with predestination and, and uh, all, all kinds of stuff, people, most Calvinists that will argue this out. No, Judas was going to do that. God made Judas. God created Judas for that moment. Come on, guys. If, if that's the case, then you have to at least accept the potential that God created you to fail and go to hell. Because why just pick on Judas? Why, why is Judas the only one that is predetermined 
to, to deny the Lord and commit suicide. Right? It wasn't God's will for Judas to do that. It wasn't God's will for Peter to do that. Any of these kind of things. I believe the reason he tells Peter this is so that Peter will repent. Now, does Peter repent? No. Does Peter go follow through? Yes. Now, this is where grace comes in. And he said there, and I appreciate the way he said it, grace is not forgiveness. Forgiveness happens under grace. Grace is what God gives us. Forgiveness is the gift inside of that. It can be other things, too. Sometimes grace is, um, is blessing us with something that, that, uh, that we didn't see coming, or maybe he didn't tell us about, or any kind of thing like that. Forgiveness is something that happens because of God's grace. The same thing with mercy. Mercy says that you should be punished, but you're not going to be punished, right? So mercy, you, you, not, you not ending up in some horrible thing in life because of your own decisions is God's mercy, right? Now, so with this, he, he does say to Peter, okay, Peter, when you do this, the rooster's going to crow, you're going you're to recognize this, but I'm going to restore you. Now, let's go to John 21 because this is when he restores him, Okay? Verse 14, this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Why, why do you think John takes the time to say that sentence? Why does that sentence matter? What is, what is the sentence telling us? Basically two things. Let me read the sentence again. This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. There's two basic things that sentence is telling us. He's raised from the dead. <laughs> this was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. He had appeared two other times. Okay? Now, so why does John take the time to write this sentence in here? This is, this is one that is not... You don't no, normally see it um, unless you, unless you uh, study these kind of things or you look at this. But I'm going to give you a chance. Some of you, somebody here may grab it. Why does John take the time to say, this is the third time Jesus showed himself to the disciples? That's... I, this, that's, the, that's the key to the story, in my opinion, is he, he's, he has not, he's already, he's already showed himself to the disciples. So here's the thing. Peter was in the room one time, that we know for sure Peter was in the room. Don't you think Peter was probably in the far corner of the room? Think about this. The first time he shows himself to, to Peter, he does not restore him. Peter doesn't have a, an existence part, except that he's there, okay? Now, here's the thing. I also think there has to be some importance to the fact that it's the third time. Everything in this story we're going to see here is three, 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 three. Everything is third. Everything has to do with the three. Um, if you like studying numbers and biblical numerology and stuff like that, check it out. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, but that, but that, that can't be coincidence either, but... He has already showed himself to Peter, but he doesn't restore Peter in the first time. That, that's, that's what I'm thinking is, we don't know for sure, it doesn't tell us, but I think the reason that he doesn't restore Peter the first time is because Peter was avoiding it. 
He was avoiding him. He was trying to stay in a distance from him. Amy. I, I do think the three is significant. I would say if I was going to have to build a case on the numerical importance of this, I would go down that road. I don't know if that's strong enough to build the whole case on, but I like those kind of things. So maybe Jesus was waiting until the third time he saw him to restore him because he had denied him three times, all this kind of stuff. We do know that the three has a significance in a second here. So after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? See, now they're all gathered around the fire and there's not other people. It's just a handful of disciples, not all the 12. It's just a handful of these guys are sitting there and Peter can't run and hide. There's food on the fire and he wants to eat. He can't take off. He can't, he can't be over in the side of the room or something like this, okay? Now he's sitting there face-to-face with, with uh, Jesus, and Jesus begins to talk to him. Don't, don't you know that first word when he said Simon? Don't you know Peter flinched? Don't you know he hardened up, wondering what was about to happen? See, we, we know the end of the story. We know it. But, but Peter doesn't yet. It hasn't happened. What does Peter think might possibly be the case? Now, if, you know, biblically thinking, people always say, well, you know, he knew that Jesus had told him he was going to restore him. And I, Come on, guys. That's, that's, over, that's overarching looking with a, with a spiritual mindset over this. There's no way you could convince me that Peter walked up to that meal going, you know what? Jesus is about to restore me. I'm feeling good about this. There's no way. Our human nature doesn't do that. Our human nature will not go there that easily. He was expecting some kind of something. God onto. Does he think that Jesus will, you know, be kind in the end? Probably. I mean, you can't hang out with Jesus for three years and not get to know who he is, right? But I think there's a part of him that is worried about what Jesus is about to say here, okay? So, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What, what is the these? There are different theological uh, ideas here, by the way. Do you love me more than these? Okay, that's one philosophy. Other men sitting around the fire. What's the other option? The fish. What, what he's eating. He's, they're sitting around a fire and there's food. So, so here's the thing. Is Jesus saying... I do, have a, I do have a strong feeling about this, but I don't think the other is wrong, okay? I believe one of these. Do you think Jesus is talking about all the people that he's been hanging out with that he's worried about um, what he looked like to them? Or do you think he's worried about the food? I'm not, I don't want you to try to figure out what I think. I want you to think about what you think. You've heard me preach about this before. No, I don't think that's not. Remember the first time Jesus ever sees Peter. What does he say to Peter? Follow me, leave the fishing. Peter was fishing. Leave the fishing, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. This is the first time. See, that can't be me. I'm not doing it. This is the first time... That, that they had all gone back to a formalized fishing. Do you realize that? After Jesus' 
resurrected after this is over, they're like, well, let's go back to fishing. Except that's not what Jesus told them that he was going to call them to do. Do you think Jesus only told them, I'm going to make you fishers of men for three years, then you're going to go back to fishing for fish? But they were all back out on the lake again, going back to what they knew, going back to their comfort zone, going back to their life. Now, I don't think that it's totally not the people. I think it's actually kind of everything. I th- but I focus more on the, the fish and stuff. I think Jesus points at the fish and says, do you love me more than this? Or in other words, do you love me more than your life? You know fish. You know fishing. Do you want to go back to that? Do you want to go down that road? Or do you want to follow my path for your life? Now, I think it could also include the people because he's saying, Peter, are you more concerned with the people that are sitting here? It could be both. Are you more concerned with the people or are you more concerned with what I think about you? Either one is legit, right? Either way, Pete, Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Yes, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, which is why I think it's the food too because he says feed my lambs, right? He doesn't say don't be scared of these people. You love me more than the fish? Yes, then feed my lambs, because I called you to be fishers of men, okay? Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Don't you, don't you know Peter was thinking, why are you asking me this again? You just asked, I answered. I, in my head, I'm thinking, he's saying, Jesus, do we have to do this? I know, I'm horrible, I messed up. I do what I want. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Peter said, you know I love you. Take care of my sheep. It's different than feed. Just take care of. Taking care of the sheep and feeding the sheep are two different things. Okay? A third time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. But why did he need to ask it three times? This is easy. Because he denied him three times. Peter was hurt. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Okay, now, here's the thing with this. When, when, when Jesus saves us, he doesn't expect us to become recluses. He doesn't expect us to, to, to shrivel away into our little church settings and only do church things with church people under church circumstances. P- Peter could have gone back and fished if that's all Jesus wanted, Peter was, was uh, going to serve him. Peter was, was going to give his heart to him. He was going to be dedicated to Jesus. But that's, but that's according to the way the American church thinks. Well, Peter could go back and do his own life, and then he could just serve Jesus along the way. Except that when, when Jesus said, Peter, I called you, he expects completeness from Peter, which means he has to interact with the lost. He has to. It is, it is the epitome of, of selfishness to keep what Jesus has given you to yourself. That you can't, you can't get more selfish, which in my opinion, if that's the epitome of selfishness, is it really Christianity? Are we really serving Jesus if, if we just keep it all to ourselves? We just lock ourselves up. Well, I'm going to tell my kids, but, but nobody else. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to separate ourselves from everybody and everything. I've even had this conversation with people about um, Christian schools and, and private schools and things like that, which I don't think are bad. I think they're good. I think some kids need to be in Christian schools, and I think some kids don't. I think some kids need to be in public schools. Now, some kids don't. Some, 
Some kids are at different places, at different stages. Some kids uh, mature differently. They understand things differently. They, they're susceptible. And I would say, even if you have multiple kids, I would say some of the children in your family are more public school kids and some potentially uh, Christian school kids. But the idea that somehow that the church has embraced this, that all Christians should go to Christian schools, I can't accept that. There's something wrong with that philosophy. Because if we pull all the Christian kids out of the Christian schools, what's the hope for the kids? In the, I mean, all, out of the public schools, what's the hope for the public schools? You say, well, I'm not going to sacrifice my kid for that. I don't think you have to. What's another option besides sacrificing your kids to the, to the evil of public schools? Empower them, teach them, train them, talk to them, pray for them, help them. Some, <clears throat> some kids thrive in that atmosphere. They can tell kids. They can talk to kids. They can pray for kids. They should be in that atmosphere. God's called them to do that. God's anointed them to do that. We can't be scared. Plus, here's the thing. I, I hate to say it this way. You send your kid to Christian school all their life. That doesn't guarantee anything. That doesn't guarantee anything. And look at him. <clears throat> there is, there is, it's just, I think there's just different settings for different kids. So, so I'm not anti all the other options, homeschooling or, or Christian schools. I think those are valid. They're very important set settings. But I don't think that that should just be the default for all Christian families. I think there can be some other things. Plus, plus you've got to prepare your kids somehow if they're in Christian schools, or, or I would say this is more of a homeschooling thing, your kids are homeschooled, you've you got to prepare them for when they leave that homeschool and go into the real world, because they haven't really been in the real world much. We have homeschool groups that use the church here. There's about 50 or 60 kids that are up here on Monday mornings, but they're all still only interacting with homeschool kids. That's a culture. That's a mindset. It's not bad. It's a good mindset. But someday, someday you... Someday they got to leave. You know? So I think sometimes we got to think through this kind of stuff. When Jesus tells Peter, Peter, feed my sheep, Peter had failed miserably, but that did not disqualify Peter from what God had called him originally to do, and that was to go into the world and be fishers of men. He had called him to do that. No matter what Peter does, it doesn't disqualify him. In fact, I think if you're going to disqualify Peter, he would have been disqualified pretty early in this thing. Peter walked around with his foot in his mouth continuously. But that didn't disqualify him. Thank the good Lord in heaven. <laughs> that resonates with my spirit. But, but the reality is God calls us to be fishers of men. And see, here's the thing that happens is once you become adults, once you become adults, you can't keep going to Christian school. You can't homeschool. You can't just stay at home every day, all day long. You can't. You have to do things like go to work. You have to do things like go to the grocery store. And where are we supposed to be in our relationship with the Lord when we go to the grocery store? Anointed, called, purposeful, and ready to be used. And that's... That's the, what Jesus was telling Peter. Peter, what do you love the most? 
Peter says, I love you the most, Jesus, then you can do this. As long as you love me the most, you can do this. That's all you got to do is love me the most. All right. Um, One other thing before the next video, uh, we're about to watch video eight, but one other thing I wanted to mention also is redemption. We we, we talk about redemption, but but, um, I did a sermon series like maybe two years ago talking about the bigger picture of redemption, that Jesus doesn't just redeem us to himself. What else does Jesus redeem? We're going to go in three or four layers here. What else does Jesus redeem? Or God redeems through the blood of Jesus Christ. What would you say? All of humanity. That's one layer. What else does Jesus redeem? Okay. Uh, A relationship with God, a relationship with each other, and, and the layers of those relationships. Intimacy with God, intimacy with each other, marriage, those kind of things. Family, that's one of the things he redeems is parental connection, children, all that kind of stuff. These are layers that, that we kind of cast out when we, when we sin, okay? What else does he redeem? Say that again. He redeems us physically and spiritually, emotionally and mentally. All, all four of those are in Isaiah 53, okay? So what else does he redeem? All of creation. Remember, he redeems the earth back to himself. He redeems creation itself. Remember, there's so many scriptures. The, the series I did a couple years ago, there's, there's, there's hundreds of scriptures that talk about God redeeming the planet back to himself, redeeming creation back to himself, redeeming the universe back to himself, redeeming the, the little sentences like even the rocks would cry out. I don't think that's just a funny little saying that Jesus said. I believe that he is saying creation. Remember, he tells us creation is groaning, groaning, waiting to be redeemed. God redeems creation, Anna. Yeah. Yeah, the animals are not throwaway. The animals are part of his creation. The mountains are part of his creation. Now, I don't know how he redeems a rock to himself. I don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me because I didn't make it. I didn't make the planet. I didn't make the rocks. I didn't make the trees. I didn't make all that kind of stuff. But it says that creation is waiting, groaning, waiting for him to bring it back to himself. It also says that the foundations of the earth will never go away. Did you know that? Will never be done away with. That's why when, when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, he uses the same word earth, what we would call the planet. He uses the same word throughout all of Scripture. So when he creates a new earth, it's somehow at the foundation of that still exists, and he creates it from the foundation of that. I don't know how. I, that goes beyond what I think Scripture shows us, at least from what I see. But we know that he's going to redeem that back to himself. Well, what's something else that he redeems back to himself? Time. That's a big one. Anything else? What about God's will for us, his plan? 
Didn't he redeem that back to himself too? See, God had a plan for human beings when he put us in the garden. We're not fulfilling it. We may be fulfilling some of it. Hopefully we are. But you're not fulfilling what God had created us to, to do. Sin has messed that up. Sin has derailed that thing, and we're over here, and then someday we're going to be brought back. Jesus' blood starts the process of bringing that back. Okay. In fact, we're going to look at a scripture here in just a second that um, Dr. Cloud uh, uses in, incorrectly. I don't think he tries to, but he does. And, and we're going we're gonna to bring that back. His blood starts us in the process of bringing God's will back, not just us back to him, but his plan for humanity, his plan. What are we eventually going to do, the, the Christians, what are we going to do when we step into eternity? What is one of the things we're going to do? Worship God, some other things. Serve him. And that can be a lot bigger. Than, you just say the word serve him, we don't know what that means. We're going to rule and reign with him. There's going to be all kinds of stuff going on. We're going to priest, right? We're going to have a, a dinner to celebrate what? We're going to have a dinner. What? Marriage supper. you got to scream at me, Hannah. I can't always hear. We're going to have a marriage supper, which means we just got married. To whom? Jesus. Who marries Jesus? The bride. The church. The church marries Jesus. So here's my question. Is that something God just decided recently? When did he decide that? That the, that the human beings were going to marry Jesus? When did he decide that? Probably before we existed. Why would he have come up with it after the fall? So how? So you're saying God decides after we sin, hey, I want these people to marry my son. So that so God created a new idea after we sin. I don't think so. What? We were the pure bride. And, and that's why in Ephesians 5, he says he presents us back to the Father. He had, we had already been presented to the Father as pure and spotless, right? Because we were pure and spotless. We were the bride. But he redeems us back, and he says that Jesus, through his blood, presents us back to God the Father as pure and spotless. Right. His, his, our plan was, God's plan was for us to always be with him to marry him. Yes, sir.
No, that's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. I'll, I'll give you another one. What is something else we're supposed to do in eternity? We already talked about it. We're supposed to priest, right? We're the royal priesthood. Did God decide that after we fell? Do you understand what I'm saying? See, he created us to be the priesthood. He created us to be the bride. He created us to do these things. Sin is what derailed that stuff. That was, all of this stuff was God's plan from the beginning. We, we, were, we were already ruling and reigning with him over all of creation. And he says he's going to put that back in order for us to rule and reign with him again. But we can't do it now. I can't marry Jesus now unless I'm covered with the blood. I can't priest now unless I'm covered with the blood. I can't rule and reign unless I'm covered with the blood. The only difference, the only thing that happened in there is we sinned, so therefore we needed blood to bring it all back. Not to start new things, but to bring it back. Roy, were you going to say something? Yeah. Now, now here's the thing with that. What? Satan had to agree to believe that God had a plan. We were just trying to mess it. Yeah. Right? We were just trying to mess it. So he had to agree to believe. He would never have known God if he hadn't been deliberate for a long time. He had to believe a little bit. And that's why he wanted to mess with God's plan of messing it up. And he thought he could somehow. This is the part that I don't get. Satan really believes he can derail God's plan. I. I th yeah, I think he still thinks. And that's what we're seeing in the world today is Satan's attempt to try to do that. So here is the next thing, because um, what these two things are the outside of time, God is outside. These are, this is exactly true. So here is the trick. Here is the question. So was it God's will for Adam and Eve to sin? No. See, this is where it is so difficult for us as limited human beings to, to separate the two things. To differentiate between God knowing and God wanting. God knowing and God desiring. God knows everything. God knows everything. But you don't have to sin. Because I've had that argument before. Well, you're going to sin no matter what because God's already said it. What? Then what's the point of salvation? What's the point of Jesus dying? If, you were, if you're going to sin no matter what, and you're either going to go to heaven or hell no matter what, what is the point? Jesus wasted the cross. If you were created to go to hell, what's the point? Now, God is outside of time, so he can. In fact, uh, the way you're saying about the VCR of the, or the video of the, um, of the uh, game, this is where in that... that, that that example doesn't even totally work in my head because of one thing. God's at all of it at the same time. Not at a specific place. So it's not like he's fast forward and rewind or whatever. He's, he's at all of it at the same time. He's at the beginning and he's at the end. He's before time and he's after time. 
Remember, time goes away when we get to eternity. God's over all of it. So God knows, and this is where I don't totally understand how, I, I, no matter how I try to think about it, it doesn't connect in my head. I just, I, just, I just know this is true. Just because God knows it doesn't mean it was his will. Right? Are you following me? Just because he knows you're going to sin doesn't mean that's what he wants you to do. doesn't mean that was his plan for you. The reason that God knew before the beginning of time that Jesus was going to die on the cross is because he could see us and what we were doing. Now think about this. If you just want to go into the time-space continuum problem, here's one. It hurt God before we ever did it that we were going to hurt God. Think about that. Jesus, because he was also outside of time, he could see himself dying on the cross before he ever incarnated. Take, take that one and wrap your mind around it. Because that could be a little difficult. Jesus can see what he's about to go through. He can see it. He knows every detail what he's about to go through before he becomes incarnated. But then once he becomes incarnated, he suspends that ability to see it coming. That's the trick. That's what the incarnation is, is he sets his deity to the side and he becomes fully human, and he has to go through it as a human. And now he's limited to time and space. He's limited to physical pain. He's limited to this physical body. So, so all of this, in, in my opinion, all of this comes back full circle to one thing. God expects us to be following him in everything, doing, being, not just sitting, not just hanging out. He expects us to be following him in everything because he does have a plan, and he has a plan for you, and he has a plan for all of us. He has a plan for you right now, today. He has a plan for you. He has people he wants you to talk to. He has souls that he wants you to witness to. He has people he wants you to pray for. He has things that you're going to go through that other people need to help you through. All of this stuff. I mean, you could go down layers and layers and layers. But don't confuse that with he has planned for you to fail. He has planned for you to sin. He has planned for you to turn away from him. That's, that's the opposite of what he's trying to do. The reason he gives us the word of God is because he doesn't want us to fail. He doesn't want us to do. There are things that I know I have not fallen into because I read it in the Bible first. And I knew. I knew that this was a, a, an option for me, and I read it in the Bible, so I didn't do it. That's the point. Now, here's also part of the deal, is that's also the point for you and I. That's part of the reason that we have the family of God together, is because you need other people to come alongside of you and help you in the plan. So your plan is not just you. And this is where, again, this is where it gets a really, when you consider 7 billion people, man, this gets muddy fast. God not only has a plan for you, but it involves tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of other people interweaving with your plan, their plan. I don't know how God could do that. I would not even be able to write my plan for myself if I had all the time, everything, and I could write out. I couldn't even do that for one person. I can prove this. Parents, try that with your children. Well, I can do it. I can, I can, okay, and then they leave and they go to school, and you're like, that's why I homeschool. I just said, you know, that's, but, but you can't even, you can't, you can't plan your own child. You can't even plan that. They're going to amaze you sometimes and disappoint you sometimes. And, and, and both can be evenly, uh, um, evenly on the opposite sides of the spectrum. 
Sometimes your children will amaze you beyond what you thought possible. And then sometimes they'll discourage you beyond what you thought possible. I might, I'll give you a little story. My uh, son, he videoed this for us the other day because he didn't realize what was happening, but he saw it, and then he videoed it for us. But uh, when he comes up, they have a ring doorbell that shows you outside, you know? So when he comes up, and he'll ring the doorbell sometimes, and then, or it's at the church. I think it's at his church. Is that right, Linda? No, it's at his house, too. So he comes up, and he rings the doorbell, and the video comes on, and his wife's inside, and she sees that on her phone. So he always raises his shirt up and says, woo like that, right? Because, you know, she wants to see that. So, so the other day he walks up and, and, and he gets close to the door. And as he gets closer, he rings the door because his hands are full and he rings the doorbell. And he hears his daughter go, ooh. He didn't realize what she was doing. He, he looked down and he said it took him a couple seconds to figure out she was raising her shirt up. So he backed up and rang again so, he could, so we all could see it on the video. And every time he'd ring the door, she'd go, ooh. Sometimes your children surprise you, and you're like, I did not know. She's a year and a half, almost, well, closer to two now. And uh, he said, I didn't know she's watching or paying attention. Well, here's another, little, here's another little thing about life. They are never not watching you. They are never, ever not watching you. It doesn't matter how old they are. It does not matter how old they are. They are watching you. And they are paying attention. And, and, and here's the thing is they may be arguing with you or discussing or whatever and disagreeing, or whatever, but they're still watching you, and you'll be surprised at what can happen there. Okay, now let's look at, yeah, let's look at the last video because this kind of closes out this subject and the whole series. Go ahead. There's a lot of different ways to describe, I think, biblical community. You know, commune, that's when we come together. But biblical community is different than just community. Community is kind of where people are together. You know, you have a community in your neighborhood, you have a community at work, you have a community in a, in a local town. But a biblical community asks more of us than to just be together. It asks us to be together towards an end, towards a purpose. You know, the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling all things unto himself. In other words, that this mission of reconciliation that he calls us to have, the ministry of reconciliation, he's asking us to bring things back to the way they ought to be. So it's not just hanging out. It's actually, as the New Testament puts it, that he's creating this 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 temple you know he's creating this this worship this this entity this this body and this body is to grow up into maturity and to be the bride and so community is certainly being together it's certainly supporting one another it's certainly enjoying one another. It's certainly savoring relationship with each other. It's going through the cycles of life together. It's traveling on this journey in a common place, but it's more than that. It's also, it, it's, it's, 
in the New Testament's words, it, there's a teleos to this. There, there's, a, there's an end goal. There's, there's a purpose. There's a maturity. There's a completeness. And so one of the things that to build a biblical community, you have to ask, do we have that purpose and that vision of this is about growing people past where we find them and growing us where we find ourselves? It's about becoming more. And that's what biblical community is. It's becoming a group of people that is becoming not only a group of people, but that's becoming a mature, spotless, without wrinkle, without blemish, mature, together people that have been reconciled to the way things ought to be, which is the original image of God, that we're to be like the second Adam. And that means that we're building skills, we're completing people, we're healing people, we're teaching people, we're giving people charge of their talents to go do things in service and, and subdue and rule some little area that they're stewards over, to build families, and also for that community to be a light out into the larger community where it's planted. Now, when that happens, we're multiplying, we're growing leaders, we're building things into the next generation. And as that happens, Remember, biblical community has a purpose. It's not just being together. It has a purpose. So, so to me, that's kind of the defining thing is, is the purpose. And, and this is, from my perspective, this is one of the biggest missing things in the church at large. Not, not necessarily here, but I would include us too, I guess. But the church at large, this, this purpose, what are we here for? That Jesus saves us to redeem us back to himself to fulfill that purpose. Not just get to heaven. And, and somehow we kind of change this into, Jesus saved me so I can get to heaven. So I learn a bunch of stuff about that. And I learn a bunch of stuff and I lock a bunch of information in my head. I, I've watched this all my life for 49 years. I've watched this. We go to church so we can put information in. We, we go to Bible studies so we can put information in. We keep putting information in and putting information in. But when do you fulfill the purpose? The purpose is not receiving information. The purpose is not gaining more information. It's doing something. It's being who we're supposed to be. I, I believe the average Christian in, in any church that's been a Christian more than a few years, you could cut your knowledge in half and still be way more effective than you're being. We just have knowledge, 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 knowledge. Obviously, I'm not against knowledge. That's, that's what I do every day. I, I try to get more knowledge, try to get more understanding. And, but at some point, you have to do. Jesus didn't call us to know. He called us to do. And when we get to heaven, he doesn't say, well-known, faithful servant. You knew stuff. Man, you knew stuff. Good job at knowing he says, well, done, which means you had to have done stuff, not knowed stuff. Some of there has to be that transition into God. You've called me for purpose. You've called me for something. You called me. He, even when he put Adam in the garden, he didn't say, Adam, just hang out here. Don't do anything. He gave Adam job. He gave Adam responsibility. He gave him leadership. He gave him the, 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 the task list. You got to do this stuff. Now, I don't think Adam... Was like, I don't want to do this. 
I don't think it was every morning at 4.30 in the morning, got to make the donuts. I don't think that's what he was doing. I always use that example, but nobody under 40 even knows what I'm talking about when I... Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Got to make the donuts? Okay. Um, I'm sure Adam's waking up at 4.30 in the got to name a giraffe. Don't you think that would have been fun for him? Don't you think that would have been exciting? And God gives him the knowledge to accomplish it all supernaturally. In fact, I believe that, that Adam and Eve's knowledge base went way down after they sinned. I think that went way down. How, how do I know? Because I don't know any Adam and Eve's knowledge base on this planet right now. One person that could name every single animal ever in existence? No, I don't mean name them because you remember it. Name them because you create it. Right? Knowledge base goes down. Relationship goes down. Everything goes down when we sin. Now, here's one thing. I just want to throw this out here. Um, he says that we're supposed to be the second Adam. That's, that he's not saying that properly. The second Adam is who? Jesus. We're not supposed to be the second Adam. In fact, it says the first Adam and then the last Adam. The, only, the closest you could come up with with something that could be the, scripturally true is we could be the in-between Adams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The first Adam starts it crashing. 1 Corinthians 15 says the second Adam redeems it, starts it back in the right direction. First Adam spirals. Second Adam brings it out. We can't be the second Adam. What he's saying, I'm thinking what he's saying is we follow Jesus' example of the second Adam, and that's how we think, act, live, is we're building people, we're storing people, we're lifting them up, all that kind of stuff. But we can't be the second Adam. Jesus is the second Adam, right? So what's our purpose? What's your purpose? Serving, tell people about him, worshiping, and then a bunch of other little things that are not the same as mine. My purpose is not the same as yours. Yeah, and, and you know, we talk about God's will and stuff like that. I, I, think it's, I, don't, I think if you just do the best you can to serve God today, you'll be in God's will tomorrow. Do the best you can to serve God tomorrow, you'll be in God's will the next day. I do think he has specific times and moments when he tells you certain things, like go here, move here, do this, start this, those kind of things. But I really think the way that we can accomplish the big goals, the long-term will, is that we're just in his will right now. Just do the best you can to be in his will right now. You'll be amazed at how 20 years later, you've been walking in his will. You've just been doing some pretty cool stuff. right? So how are we going to pray about this? Sure. There's, there's, that's always a good prayer. God, show me your will. There's, there's never a time that's not a good prayer. What else? Yeah, I think that's a good prayer too. When you, when you limit your life to only yourself, you're wasting it. You're wasting what God has given you. And you're hindering other people too. So pray, God, how can I restore a relationship? And I would say always, restore a relationship with God, restore a relationship with other people. Help other people restore a relationship with God. Build relationships people don't know. And, and you know, I think restore relationships is the right way to say it because 
I believe the reason that we don't automatically have a relationship with everybody is because of the fall. That's why we have to build relationships. They're, they don't just happen. We have to work at them because of the fall. So that's another anything else. What else are we going to pray about? Give us opportunities. Show us those opportunities. Give us boldness. All the things that go with that. All of the stuff that goes with that. All right. I always pray at the end of this. Does anybody else want to? I don't have to be the only one. I don't mind. I enjoy it. Nobody? I don't see anybody jumping up. Linda, did you want to? Okay. Nikki will pray. <clears throat>